Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word, as well as our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho, and also Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us uh, for our study here today uh, as well. Um, we're going to be looking at, as we continue our series, Unwrapped, Unwrapping God's Greatest Gift. And by the way, let's just do a little poll. Uh, how many of you wrap, uh, unwrap gifts one at a time in your family? Can we see that? Okay. Do we have anybody here that just charges in, does them all at once? Anybody? Okay. That tradition still lives. So there you are. So very, very cool. So we got a mixture between the two of unwrapping. And tonight we're talking about unwrapping God's greatest gift, which of course is Jesus. Now, we're going to be looking at the most famous genealogy in human history. And there's a couple of stereotypes about genealogies. You know, we, we usually see them as boring, or if you're doing a Bible reading program, you know, through the Bible in a year, when I see a genealogy, I'm like, oh, good, it's catch-up time. I can skim through this genealogy, and I can catch up a day or two if I'm a day or two behind in my reading. But there are a couple of stereotypes about genealogies. Uh, first of all, that genealogies can be complicated and confusing. Uh, there's a song that was popular when I grew up in Virginia years ago entitled, I'm My Own Grandpa. How many of you remember that song? I'm My Own Grandpa. It goes like this. Many, many years ago, when I was 23, I was married to a widow who was pretty as could be. This widow had a grown-up daughter, had hair of red. My father fell in love with her, and soon the two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. My daughter was my mother because she was my father's wife. My father's wife, this is all legal, by the way, at least in Virginia. At least in Virginia, it was legal. My father's wife that had a son that kept them on the run, and he became my grandchild for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother, and it makes me blue. Because she is my wife, she's my grandmother too. I'm my own grandpa, I'm my own grandpa. Now, that's just called life as normal in Virginia, where I grew up at that particular time, but uh, that would be unusual for, uh, for Southern Californians. And so there's that stereotype that uh, they are confusing and they're complicated. The other stereotype is that genealogies are boring. Uh, here's a picture of our granddaughter, Avonlea, and we have a family uh, joke about um, our relationship with Avonlea and me. Uh, when we were on family vacation together this summer, she wouldn't asleep, fall asleep for anybody, particularly when all the family was together and they were all having fun. She just wouldn't go asleep, would never fall asleep except for one person, and that was me. Okay, she would fall asleep for Pop-Pop, but for, for nobody else. And she would in, almost instantly fall asleep whenever I would hold her. Uh, she would fall asleep when we were sitting uh, together on a chair. Uh, she would fall asleep when we were sitting together on a bench. Uh, we were sitting, uh, we were fall, she would fall asleep. We were walking together, she'd fall asleep. Uh, now, this is the crazy one. Even when we were standing in a swimming pool together, she would fall asleep. That was, that was like the crazy one. And so the family joke is that my secret to getting her to sleep is I would just start preaching. And as soon as I would start preaching... She would, just, uh, she would just crash. But it wasn't just any sermon. The family joke, this is fam, pastor family humor, uh, the, the family joke was that I would preach on the genealogies. And so whenever anybody would see me with her asleep in my arms, I'd go, Shebaz begot Zobat, begot Zambah, begot Zephaniah. And so the joke was when I would preach on the genealogies, she would fall um, asleep. And, and so uh, my goal this morning is to break the stereotype 
that the genealogies of the Bible are the most boring parts of the Bible. And we're going to do that by looking at the genealogy of Jesus. Now, you know how it is to have unusual family members. Don't raise your hand on this because they might be sitting nearby. But how many of you, just mentally answer it, don't answer it out loud, uh, have unusual members of your extended family, okay? How many of those have? And you know how it is. You meet the love of your life. And she's amazing. And she's wonderful. He's fantastic. Just fantastic. And then you meet their extended family. If they're smart, they wait until after the wedding to take you to a family reunion that involves an extensive family. You kind of wait on that one until it's a done deal. And there's odd Uncle Al from Minnesota, and there's weird Aunt Louise from Louisiana. And they're just, you know, all of a sudden, you begin to meet the quirky members of the family. And you say, I love her, I love him. They're amazing, but I'm not too sure about their family. And the same thing's true with Jesus, isn't it? I mean, you meet Jesus, he's awesome. And then you meet his family. You meet the local church, and it's made up of all kinds of different personalities. Uh, some of them you like, some of them you don't like, and you say, man, Jesus is awesome, but I'm not so sure about his, his family. I'm not so sure about the local church. As a matter of fact, I have a, a belief that the, Satan's goal for your life, if you've just committed your life to Christ, here's Satan's goal for a new Christian, is to as soon as possible have you meet the most obnoxious Christian possible. That, that's his goal for you. That as soon as possible, you meet some Christian, fellow Christian, that voted differently than you did in the last election. And they are loud and boisterous in the way they describe why they made that decision. Or somebody that has an unusual personality. Or somebody that rubs you the wrong way. And Satan will try to get you up on Jesus, but discouraged by being connected with the local church. And so people talk about church hurt and things where just a fellow church member rubbed them the wrong way. And so they're all into Jesus, but not for the local church. The local church is like a group of porcupines huddled together on a cold winter's night. I mean, it's cold out there. We need community with each other. We need mutual encouragement. We need mutual accountability. But the closer we get with each other, we have quills that stick each other. Personality quills and sin quills. You got quills, I got quills. All God's children got quills. And the more we, as porcupines, huddle together, the more we, we stick each other with those quills. Now, here's the good news this morning. God loves us. And he can teach us how to love each other in spite of our quills. Okay, he can teach us how to do that in spite of those sinful quills or those personality quills. As a matter of fact, he wants to use that within our lives. Very common thing you hear today is, oh, I'm all into Jesus. But no, I don't want anything to do with organized religion. I like disorganized religion. I, you know, I, I, want to, I don't want to be a part of the local church. There's hypocrites there, all this kind of thing. You know what? It is impossible to fulfill God's mission for your life outside of the context of the local church. It is impossible to grow to the extent God wants you to grow. The way you grow is by being connected with a local church. It is in the diverse personality types that you grow. They are the Holy Spirit's sandpaper to mold you and to polish you into the character of Jesus Christ. It is in living your faith in the context of relationships with other people, whether that be small groups like rooted groups or life groups, or whether that be in the extended church. It is in relationship with each other that we grow to be more Christ-like. 
You can't do that just you and Jesus against the world. Lone Ranger Christianity does not produce that. It doesn't produce things like the fruit of the Spirit and graciousness and humility and gentleness and kindness in spite of our differences. The more diverse we are and yet the better we get along together, the more that is a witness to the world that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And I praise God for the diversity of our church. People are amazed by it. We take it so for granted, we don't even think about it. But do you know, statistically, we're in like the top 1% or 2% of churches in the United States uh, with regard to diversity, within the world with regard to diversity. And, And God uses that. The more people see different people from different backgrounds or, 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 or ethnicities or male, female or different ages all getting along together, the more people see that, the more they say that doesn't make sense. Jesus must be in the midst of them and they will give him praise and glory and they will be drawn closer to him. And so here's the good news. God loves us and he can teach us how to love each other. And so the title of this study is the family he, Jesus, came from and the family he came for. He came from a certain family. He came for a certain family of which we are part of that family. And kind of our theme is Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the perfect. No. Christ died for the godly. No. Christ died for people who have it all together. No. Christ died for people who have no personality flaws that never irritate other people. No. Christ died for people that only obey the the freeway laws on the highway, on the 10 freeway. No. Uh, Christ died for who? You tell me. The ungodly, of which we are capital, you know, examples of this. Uh, Verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. Is that good news? I'm telling you, that is good news. And all God's family said, amen. He died for us while we were still sinners. And you can just see that exemplified in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew uh, 1, verses 1 through 17. So let's, let's begin to look at that uh, together. Uh, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the first thing you'll notice is what it doesn't say. Here's, here's what it doesn't say. It starts with, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. But what it doesn't start with, once upon a time. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say once upon a time. That's how a fairy tale begins. That's how a myth begins. That's how a legend begins. No, this is history. This really happened. This actually happened. You can map it. You can plot it. You can look at it in human history. You can test it. This is no fairy tale. This is no legend. This is no myth. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, grounded in human history. Now, I'm going to break a lot of hearts now. But it doesn't say, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I know I'm breaking some hearts now, and actually some are going to run out. You're hurting my ears. and like that. Okay, it it doesn't say a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, It is history. It actually happened. Now, interestingly enough, it's not just a genealogy, but it's a resume. Now, this is fascinating. In an individualistic culture, like American culture, our resumes are a list of personal individual achievements, 
uh, a list of degrees that we've achieved, or work experience, or accomplishments. But a thousand years ago in Israel, in Jewish uh, culture, this is a more communal, family-oriented society. It's not individualistic. It's family-oriented. It's communal. And so your resume was your family, your pedigree, your clan, the people you were connected to. Uh, You would share your genealogy as a way to say, this is who I am. And your resume was not like we have it, a set of individual accomplishments. Your resume was your people. This is my family, the people I'm connected to. This is who I am. Now, in the same way today, people tinker with their resumes. You polish them up every once in a while to look as good as possible. You you try to shine them up. You try to get just only the best accomplishments. You don't put the negative things in there. You put only the top ones or the positive things. Um, you You don't put on your references people that are going to give you a bad reference. You put your mother on there, or you put uh, somebody else that's going to say nice things about you, uh, and so that we tinker with our resumes. And the same thing was true back then. They used to tinker with their genealogies as a way to polish up their resume. They wanted to look as good as possible, and they wanted the people of their resume, their genealogy, to look as good as possible. Let me give you an example. Herod the Great, the Herod of the Christmas story who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem trying to kill uh, the baby Jesus, Herod the Great. Historians tell us that he purged certain names from his public genealogy because they were embarrassing. He had some skeletons in his closet. He had some people that were embarrassing. And so he would eliminate those legally from his genealogy because they were embarrassing. You see, the purpose of a genealogical resume was to impress other people with the high quality and respectability of your roots. Now we come to the genealogy of Jesus as recorded by one of his followers, his biographers, Matthew. And Matthew does the exact opposite. One Bible scholar I read this week said, it, the genealogy of Matthew is shockingly unlike any other ancient genealogy. It is shockingly different than any other genealogy from antiquity. It stands out like a sore thumb. And does that surprise you? Because everything Jesus does is countercultural. He told people not to just love the people that like you, but love your enemies. He said, if you want to be a great leader, learn to be the servant of all. Uh, Jesus said, if you want to find your life, lose your life. Give it away. Everything about Jesus was countercultural. Everything about Jesus was swimming upstream. So should it surprise us that even his genealogy would be shockingly unlike any other ancient genealogy from antiquity? Rather than trying to make himself look good and very inclusive as only elite number of people that could be a part of his family, he shows that his love is broad and that he has his arms open to everybody. And he doesn't care the messy family members he has within his family. But let me give you some examples. The first is very interesting. There are five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, we think nothing of that, right? They were all mothers of Jesus. Not literal mothers, but like great-great-great-great-grandmothers, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers. The five mothers, five women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. It was highly unusual in that patriarchal society almost unheard of to have a single woman in your genealogy. And yet Jesus has five. Matthew records five 
in his genealogy. You know what that tells you right off the bat? Everybody's welcome. Wherever Jesus is preached, the status of women always rises in cultures around the world today and throughout the last 2,000 years. I tell you, we've had all this trouble in the nation and a day of reckoning with regard uh, to mistreating women within our country and more and more coming out every day. And I tell you, if we had just followed the example of how to treat women that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago, we would not be in this mess today. He gave us the example 2,000 years ago of how you treat women. And even within his genealogy, there you find it. And it's true wherever the gospel is preached. Yesterday, we had a tremendous funeral here for a woman named Marlene Mann. She and her husband um, met at UCLA. Uh, they start coming here to, at that time, First Baptist Church of Pomona. They go out as missionaries to Thailand. And literally, God used this woman to elevate the status of women through the whole country of Thailand. They were personal friends with the king and queen of Thailand. This, this Marley man, she was literally used for a half a century to raise the status of women in a nation where they had been downtrodden. And that's true wherever the gospel goes. It always raises it. And we see right here in the genealogy of Jesus, right off the bat, a hint that says, everybody will be equal in my sight. Everybody will be equal in, in my family. Does anybody want to say amen to that? Now, the majority of these women, uh, three of the five, not only are they women, but they're Gentiles. That is, they're non-Jewish people. Now, for the ancient Jews, Gentiles would be considered unclean, uh, not allowed in the tabernacle or in the temple to worship. And yet here they are in the, in the genealogy of Jesus. So not only are women included, but also racial and cultural and ethnic outsiders as well. Everybody is going to be welcome at the, the Christmas dinner table in God's family. Jesus' genealogy tells that. It even foreshadows his ministry before he modeled all those things. It tells us that everyone is welcome. But the biggest surprise of all is the messy lives that are found in this genealogy. Now, these people did many, many wonderful things. But I'm going to focus here uh, for the next few minutes on their flaws. And I want us just to look at the ones that I bolded that we know the most about. So let's start going through this genealogy. And let me just talk about some of the flaws of the people that are in all caps there in uh, your study outline in this passage. Abraham. Abraham twice said that his wife was his sister so that he wouldn't have to fight for her. Boy, I wonder how chilly the camel ride back home was after that one. Okay. Twice said that his wife was his sister, so he wouldn't have to fight for her. His son, Isaac, sees his dad do this and thinks it's a great idea. And he does the same thing. Okay, then we come to Jacob. Um, he has like a trifecta, a hat trick of, of deception. Uh, Jacob lied to his father, cheated his brother, and ripped off his father-in-law. Boy, what a guy. Lied to his father, cheated his brother, ripped off his father-in-law. <clears throat> now we come to Judah. And, and what's interesting about Judah is he goes into more details. Now, if I have anything that's unsavory in my past, I give it very short, you know, description. Just, oh, by the way, boop, and move right on. Oh, no, not Matthew. He elaborates on the most embarrassing parts of Jesus' genealogy. J the father of Judah and his brothers. Let's go to the next verse. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, here's one of those women that I was talking about. Judah sold his own brother into slavery. 
You think your family's dysfunctional. I bet nobody's ever done that to somebody. Sold his own brother into slavery, slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar because he thought she was a prostitute. And yet Matthew, rather than trying to sweep that under the rug, he gives it greater detail. He goes into elaborate detail. Perah is the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Uh, the next one that's mentioned, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, another of the mothers of Jesus, Tamar who pretended to be a prostitute, even though she wasn't. Rahab, who was a prostitute, she was a Canaanite. And so part of these despised people that would never be allowed in the temple, never be allowed in the tabernacle, uh, Rahab was not only a female in his genealogy, she was a prostitute, and she was a Canaanite prostitute. Uh, goes on to say, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was also a Gentile, another of the mothers of Jesus, was a Gentile uh, from a country called Moab, which was a despised country uh, by the nation of Israel. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Now we're talking. Finally, we got somebody honorable within the genealogy of Jesus. We've, we've got royalty. Finally, somebody you would want to have in your genealogy. However, Matthew doesn't stop with just mentioning King David. He adds in one of the great ironic understatements of the Bible. He says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay. Now, why not just name her Bathsheba? Her name was Bathsheba. This is very important. This is not a slight on Bathsheba. This is a slam on David. This is not meant to be a slight on Bathsheba. It is meant to be a slam on David. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. There's this group of men in 2 Samuel chapter 23, where it's the 30 men that were the mighty men of, of David. They were like the League of Justice for their time. They were like the Avengers of their time. They were like the X-Men of their time. There were these 30 men that, that were like the special ops or the naval seals. They bonded themselves to David. And they would give their lives for David. And they gave their, their lives and lost all their possessions to stand by David when he was on the run from his predecessor, King Saul. They were with him in the wilderness. They went with him through the hard times. They had been bonded together by warfare. They had been bonded together by loyalty. These men were just knit together because they stood together during the hardest of times. And they laid down their lives in order to make David king and in order to protect him. And yet years later, David betrays this man Uriah's loyalty to him by sleeping with his wife, and then when she gets pregnant, um, arranges for him to be murdered so that he could marry her. And one of the children from that relationship, Solomon, it's from this child that Jesus is descended. You know what this tells me? It is not just um, gender outsiders like women of this genealogy. It is not just racial or ethnic or cultural outsiders. It is also moral outsiders. There's room for everybody at God's table through Jesus, through repentance of our sin. And don't get me wrong, all this sin was judged and they were challenged to change their ways. And David deeply repented for this and begged God's forgiveness. And God restored him. So there is a need for repentance. And there is a need for asking God for our forgiveness. But when we come through Jesus Christ, even in his genealogy, here is the hint. 
that everybody is welcome at God's table. You may have come here this morning thinking, Glenn, you just don't know what I've done. And there are just too many things in my past, and there's too much of a mess in my past. I just don't feel comfortable being part of God's family because of all the mess in my life. Let me ask you a question. Have you done any of the stuff these scoundrels have done? Probably not. And even if you had, there's still room for you at God's Christmas dinner table. Hang with me. It gets worse. Uh, Let's keep going. Uh, Solomon. Uh, Solomon had many, many wives, a ton of wives, and he allowed them to worship false gods, do idol worship, and they got him to worship uh, idols as well. Uh, He was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, because he was such a harsh and arrogant leader, he caused civil war in the nation of Israel. Uh, Asa. Asa got so mad at a preacher one day because he didn't like his sermon that he threw him into prison. This is like the worst sin of all. This is like of all of them. This is like the Lord. Got so mad at a preacher because he didn't like his sermon, he threw him into prison. Uh, Jehoshaphat made a business deal with a wicked business partner, so God wiped out the business. Jehoram killed all of his brothers. Uh, So, now if any junior hires are here, I guess they're at their program right now, so I'll emphasize this at the 1111 service. But just in case there's a junior hire here, this one is for you. Because he killed all of his brothers, God gave him an incurable bowel disease. And the Bible says his bowels were spilled outside of his body. Is that awesome or what? Junior hires, the Bible is so interesting. But on the other hand, don't fight with your brother or sister or you'll get bowel disease. Okay, so I just want you to know that there is a downside to that. You can, parents, you can use this story. This, will be, this is not one that's usually included in children's storybooks. I want you to know, this is usually not in there. Uh, but just say, uh, if you mistreat your brother or your sister, you'll get bowel disease like Jehoram. Maybe not. Okay, Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king, mainly, but in his old age, he became prideful and stubborn, and he wouldn't listen to other people. Ahaz, next one. Ahaz sacrificed his children in Satan worship. Hezekiah, for most of his life, was a good king. But he begged God for extra years to live. Now, this is very interesting. He begged God for a few extra years to live. But the problem came in those extra years. He became prideful in those years, and he made some key mistakes. So sometimes God is merciful to take us at the time that he sees fit to take us before we make mistakes that are going to mess up with our legacy. Now... The the prince of this whole genealogy is Manasseh. He is the key example here. Manasseh encouraged the nation to worship Satan. He practiced astrology. He built altars to false gods right in the temple in Jerusalem. He built altars to false gods in the temple in Jerusalem. He practiced sorcery. He practiced witchcraft. He consulted mediums and spiritists. But after all of that stuff... All that mess, he repented, and God forgave him, and he lived for God the remainder of his life. If God, you think you've got mess in your life, if God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive you and me, and you are welcome at his Christmas Day dinner table. Ammon was an idol worshiper. Josiah was good for much of his kingship. But he also, later in old age, became prideful and stubborn, and he wouldn't listen to other people when they warned him in danger. And as a result of this, the entire nation of Israel was exiled to Babylon, what is today the nation of Iraq. God raised up Iraq, 
And they came and imprisoned the people and took them back to slavery, back to the nation of Iraq, and tore down the walls of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And so they were judged in that way for their sin. And yet through all of this mess, God's purposes prevail. Through all of this mess, God continues with his plan. If ever you think, do you ever look at the world today and say, how can God's will possibly be done in all the mess that's happening today? How many of you have ever had that idea, that thought? If God could bring about Jesus through all the messy people and messy situations and historical disasters that we read about just in the genealogy of Jesus, God's message and plan and purpose can prevail today. You can count on it. It'll happen. Even through imperfect people, even through messes, God's will, plan, and purpose will still prevail. And so it goes on, verse 12. We don't know many things about this people, so we'll just kind of fly through it. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Bahud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. By the way, any of you parents pregnant looking for fresh new names that <laughs> nobody else is using? I guarantee you, you will not have another little Zadok in first grade. So you can just figure that out. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihu. Elihu, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. God's purposes prevail. Another lesson is this. God may be slow, but he always keeps his promises. How many of you would raise your hand to say you've been praying for something for a long time, and it just doesn't seem like God's coming through? How many of you with me would say that? Yeah, you've been praying for that thing. God, where are you? God, where are you? 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. 2,000 years go by since God made his promise. He may be slow, but he always keeps his promise. He will keep his promise to you. It may not be in this lifetime. It may not be this year. It may be a while in the future. It may be in heaven. But he always keeps his promises. Verse 17, let's just read that. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile of Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. But here's the best news of all from this genealogy. So many things hinted in, in the ministry of Jesus, foreshadowed in his genealogy, how he would treat women, how he would treat outsiders, how he would treat people that other people thought were undesirable within their family. Uh, but the biggest one of all is how he will accept messy people with messy lives. He'll forgive us, and when we repent, he'll turn us around, and he'll begin to help us to live in a productive, effective way to fulfill his plan and purposes in his life. And everybody is welcome at God's Christmas dinner table. John 1, verse 12. Bible says, Yet to all who did receive him, and I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a moment here. I'm going to give you a chance to receive him 
when we receive him, then God receives us. We receive him, then God receives us. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Through Jesus. You see the family Jesus came from. We're the family he came for. And through Jesus, if we receive him, God will receive us and he'll give us the right to become children of God. And then here's such a precious verse in the Bible. Hebrews 2 verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. You know what's awesome? about Jesus? You, you'd think, I mean, if it were us, I'd be like, stay away, stay away, stay away. You're making me unholy. All these people we've been talking about, don't show up at my family dinner. Don't want you in my family yearbook. Don't, don't want you in the Christmas card picture. You're, you're going to make me look bad. Jesus' holiness is so powerful that our lack of holiness doesn't mess with or water down his holiness. His holiness is so powerful, it infuses into us as well and makes us holy. Is that unbelievable? And so it says both the one who makes people holy, his holiness is so powerful that he can make us holy in God's eyes as well. And those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. And here's the best news of the morning. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Is that crazy? I'd be ashamed if I showed up at the family dinner. I'd be ashamed. And yet Jesus is not ashamed to call us a brother or a sister in Christ and to welcome us in God's family. Is that good news or what? Now I want to give you a chance to take that step to receive him. And it'll either be here on the screen or if you'd like it up close, there's a little card that says resource that's right there in front of you in the book rack. And if you want to pull that out, that would be great. And I just want to go through this little plan that we've done many times here on Sunday mornings, how to become a follower of Jesus, how to receive him so that God will receive you. First of all, you admit your condition before God. All have sinned and fall short of the perfect standards. Here's holy God. Here's unholy us. We've all sinned. I have to admit, when I look through that genealogy, I'm more like those people than I am like Jesus. I've sinned. I admit my condition. B, uh, number two, believe that Jesus is God's only solution to that condition. That's why he came. The result of my sin is spiritual death, but the gift, the Christmas gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then you got to make a decision. you got to receive Jesus so that God will receive you. Choose to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. And by the cross of Jesus, he builds a bridge between an unholy us, the family he came from, the family he came for, and a holy God. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life, has crossed over from being an outsider to being an insider. And God says, In my son's Jesus' name, if you come in Jesus' name, he pulls the chair, he sits us down, he scoots us in, and there as far as the eye can see is the banquet table of the family of God. And there sits Jesus at the head, unashamed to call us brothers and sisters at the family get-together because his holiness is now on us and we are holy as well. 
So there's a little suggested prayer there, and I'm going to pray it out loud. And if you're watching online, if you're here today, I just invite you to pray this silently as I pray out loud. Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, God, for now receiving me in Jesus. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. If you prayed that prayer, we've got some resources we would love to give to you that's at the Connect Center where I'll be out there, no pressure, no obligation, just get a packet of material that'll help you grow. If you want to talk to somebody, they're there and and would love to talk to you about that. But if you just want to grab these resources to help you in your walk with Jesus, would love to, to do that for you. And then with the song that we're going to close with, Go Tell It on the Mountain, it's just a reminder, I'm going to do what I just did. I'm going to do that exact same thing, not the same message, but the same invitation next Sunday. And so I'm I'm just sharing with you this week, if you get people to Christmas Eve services, I will share Jesus with them. And there's no more important thing we could do this week with all the Christmas activities than to go tell it on the mountain. Uh, that Jesus Christ is born, or to invite them to a Christmas Eve service and, and through music, through all kinds of great music, and through the message, we will tell them, we will tell them, your friends and your family, that Jesus Christ is born. So this next seven days, let's see it strategically, okay? The way we used it last weekend in such an amazing way, let's be used by God again this coming week uh, to share Jesus and to plant that seed in the hearts of our family and of our friends. Sound like a good idea? And all God's family said, amen. Let's do it. Let's do it.